We're going to be inviting them back in at the end of the service because you know tonight's the night, right? Where the governance team across here, we're going to do the Buffalo Wild Wings Challenge. Yeah, see, if you're visiting, see, you didn't know you were going to get that treat tonight. I know, I know. For the Faith Promise campaign that we've been in and believe in God that we're going to uh, see $50,000 come in by the, by the end of this year. And, and we said when we crossed $10,000 that the governance team was going to do the Buffalo Wild Wings Challenge at the end of the service. So at the end of the service tonight, you get to see us sweating it out up here. And we're just saying Nate Nowotny's going down. He's going down. Where's Nate? We're talking a little trash. i got to do it now because he really is going to beat us. But, so we got to, because he's going to be talking a lot of trash later. So we've got to get ours in before then. So. We're actually going to give him 24, and then the rest of us are just going to do six, just to even the, even the playing field a little bit. So, but when we cross $20,000, some CNU students here, when we cross the $20,000 giving mark, then you guys get to do a makeover for Vanessa and I, and then whatever outfits you guys pick out for us, we're going to wear that for our weekend services. So come on. Kevin Garcia is not allowed to participate, though. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, and then there's some other markers, markers along the way. So we're going to have some fun with that. So, all right, I'm going to open tonight. This is the last Saturday of our series, 50 Day PM. I'm going to miss this series. Are you going to miss this series? This has been a good series for us. As just, I have to open it by telling this hilarious story that happened to me on Friday afternoon at Hannah Godwin's old branch because she got transferred. So I know. I, got, I told her I have to drive further now because I used to come in and see Hannah and talked to some of her co-workers there. So I walked in through the Wells Fargo branch right down on Work Boulevard on Friday afternoon, and I'm in line. And you know, I'm a very task-oriented person. If you know me, you know that there's a focused part of who I am. And, uh, and, and I'm also naturally introverted. So when I'm out in, in public, I, I, I don't interact with people a ton. I have to really say to myself, hey, Fred, talk to people, right? You know, You've got a schedule that you're trying to keep, right? I'm trying to get a lot of things done. And so I'm in the bank. And I, so I felt like, you know, God spoke to my heart before I walked in and said, hey, talk to some, you're going to be in line. Talk to some people, you know, don't just focus on what you got to do. So I walk in and the person that's going to be in line right behind me, he's, he's in a, a priest outfit, right? He's got the collar on. And, and, uh, and so, I feel, you know, it's, it's not October. So I know he's a real priest, right? And so, so I'm filling out my stuff at the table, and, and, I, and I go around. And most people think, what? You've walked inside? I know. I'm 45. I still like to go inside the branch every now and again. So, so I walked in, and so I walk right up to him, and I say, so, hey, where's your church? Right? I said, what would Vanessa do in this situation? Right? Because if you know Vanessa, right, she's extroverted. Right? She would have made fun of his priest collar, but I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Right? So, so I said, hey, where's your church? Guess what he said? On Harpersville Road. I said, get out. We're on Harpersville Road. He said, I am the new priest at Mount Carmel, right next door. He just, he's only been here for a few weeks. We were both just so excited to meet each other, right? This, and it's crowded, right? And other people don't really talk in lines at the bank. You ever notice that, right? So I know we're making other people feel uncomfortable, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. So we're talking and shaking our hands, telling a little bit about the story. And so this lady walks in right behind me and sees us talking. I kid you not, she walks right up, right? Right, the butter into the conversation people. Any of those of you here? You see a conversation that looks fun, you're like, oh, I'm getting in on that, right? So she, this is a true story. I'm not embellishing. I'm not making any of this up. She walks right up to him and she goes like this, talking about how he's dressed. So does this mean you can't get married? That was the first thing out of her mouth. So he's my new friend, so I punched her in the mouth. No, I'm just kidding. So, so I said, right, he's married to the church. Was that not a good answer? Come on, little applause, little, little affirmation for Pastor Fred. Come on. 
I said, he's married to the church. So then she says this, yeah, but he still can't. And I'm going, okay, here we go. <laughs> he still can't have. And I'm like, okay, we're really going here. In Wells Fargo. Can't have children. So she, you know, she, at least she, she, she made it a little bit appropriate. So then I said, he has a whole church full of children as a pastor. Come on, yeah, come on. Come on. So she says, I kid you not. Yeah, but those kids did not come from his loins. Yeah, in the, right. No, this is a true story. It was crazy, crazy. So I said, you know, well, are you married? And she said, oh, no, I'm never getting married. And I said, well, you probably shouldn't. No, I didn't say that. I said, I said so, so you just don't want someone to tell you that you can't get married. Yeah, and looking with her a little bit, and she said, oh, yeah, no, there's no question. I said, well, do you have any kids? And all of a sudden, she gets this really sheepish look on her face, right? Because now she knows she's talking to two ministers, right? She said, well, I do. And he's only 16 months old. I said, well, what's it? Because, you know, she's feeling embarrassed, right? So I said, what's his name? She said, his name is Chiron. And I said, did you know that there is a word in the Greek called kairos, which means of the Lord's, and that your son has a destiny for God that he's going to fulfill. I'm really good at what I do. <laughs> I'm pulling a muscle, patting myself on the back. So we're talking. So now we're just having fun, with, right? We're laughing, joking around, weaving our way through, right, the line with all the turnstiles. I kid you not. This is a true story. You can get this. Hannah can get us the security tapes. You can see it all playing out. He walks away. He says to me, hey, I hope you stop by the offices. I'm there every day. I'd love to get to know you. And I said, absolutely, I'm going to do it. And I am. I'm going to do that. He turns to her because she wants to move to Florida. And he says to her, good luck with your move. And she says back to him, good luck with that celibacy thing. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. He was a good sport. Yeah, I've, you know, I'm sure that's not the first time he's been in a conversation like that. So I'm telling that story. I would have told it even if it didn't have anything to do with the series because it's stinking hilarious, right? That's what happened to me on Friday afternoon. But it has a tremendous amount to do with this series because this series, 50 Day People, has, has, has all been about believing that God does the impossible. I thought, what a powerful story. This woman is living her life and she believes there's some things that are impossible for her. She, this, she's living her life thinking to herself, it's going to be impossible for me to live my life without male affection. It's because she's not discovered the richness and the beauty of the affection that only God can give. And when you discover that kind of affection, you can wait on the other until it's right, until you make some vows of marriage to one another. She's living her life, right, because she's decided to herself what's possible and what's impossible. And you and I live our lives like that every single day. And part of being a follower of Christ is that we give God permission to redefine in our lives what's possible and what's impossible. Come on. We're going to have a good time together tonight. All right. Got to love me some history. July 9th, 1755. 
The slaughter at the Monongahela River continued for two hours. The British soldiers trained for European warfare did not break rank, even when braves fired at them from under the safe cover of the forest. By now, 1,000 to about 1,450 British soldiers were killed or wounded, while only 30 of the French and Indian warriors, not killed, just hurt. The chief's marksmen shot the mounted British officers one by one until only one remained. Quick, let your aim be certain, and he dies, the chief commanded. The warriors leveled their rifles at the last officer on horseback. Now, you've got to remember, these people, they hunt to live. They can shoot. Round after round was aimed at this one man. Twice the officer's horse was shot out from under him. Twice he grabbed a horse, left idle, when a fellow officer had been shot down. 10, 12, 13 rounds were fired by the sharpshooters, and still, still the officer remained unhurt. The chief suddenly realized that a mighty power must be shielding this man. This is history. This is a true story. Document it. Stop firing, he commanded. The man cannot be killed. All right, a little history, quick, quick giveaway to our CNU students. Got a City Life sticker. Come on. Who's, who am I talking about here? Anybody? CNU history majors? Joey? George Washington. Come on, Joey. Nice. 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 Seeing you representing. So let me, let me read. He was only 23 years old. He was a colonel. This is a letter that he, that he, that he wrote, wrote to his family. As I have heard since my arrival at this place, speaking of Fort Cumberland, a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech. I take this early opportunity of contradicting the first and of assuring you that I have not yet composed the latter. But by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability. For I had four bullet holes in my coat. Four. Two horses shot out from under me, yet escaped unhurt. And although death was leveling my companions on every side of me, I escaped beyond all human expectation. Bullet holes, come on, documented history, in his clothes, but no mark on his skin. Come on. It's impossible. Fifteen years later, in 1770, George Washington returned to the same Pennsylvania woods, and the chief who had commanded the French and Indian troops that fateful day came to see Washington and told him the story we just read. That's how we know the story, because the chief comes forward, tells this entire story. And then he speaks these words prophetically over his life. This was in 1770. He will become the chief of nations, and a people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire. I am come to pay homage to the man who is the particular favorite of heaven and who can never die in battle. Come on. You are the particular favorite of heaven. Every single one of you. And God wants to do impossible things in your life. Mark 10, 27. Okay. We've been saying all summer, is anybody going to memorize this verse? Has anybody memorized it? Not just the general, right, you know, know what it says, That'll be plan B for the giveaway. Any, anybody memorize this verse? That I'm going to take this verse on over the summer. Steve, I see Steve Ruggiero's hand. Did you get one of these last week? Did you get a sticker? You did? All right. So you're going to get two. 
You have more than one car, right? Uh, what, were you raising your hand for somebody else? Yeah? Do you know it? All right, go ahead. Come on, all right, let's give him the microphone. Let's let him say that. Jesus looked at, them and looked at him intently and said, with man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. Come on, that's nice. We'll give you those. You can, ha- you can share those. Don't be bitter. Don't be bitter that you didn't know that. Come on, there it is. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with him. All right, can we just do one other giveaway that has nothing to do with the service? So, so, so Steve Terrio has been working with our team to redesign, and he built that platform for the drum. And, and while he was working on it, he said, you know, I don't want to get paid if I could just get Kevin Tully's new CD, right? So he just happened to say that in passing. He doesn't know we're always listening. So there it is right there, Steve Terrio. He said he would have gotten it done a lot sooner if Nate hadn't been helping him, but I wasn't supposed to say that. Out loud. Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Come on, as a church, as a church, we have an unshakable belief, an unshakable conviction that God still makes the impossible possible. We've been answering all summer, what does it mean to be a Pentecostal church in a a modern day world with all of the excesses, with all the crazy things that we've been around and and have endured throughout our lives and and, and Pentecostal type settings. We're saying, come on, those things don't have to define Pentecostalism. For us as a church, what's going to define Pentecostalism is that we believe that verse means something very real for us today. That we are the particular favored of heaven, favored of God, and that he wants to do impossible things in our lives. And we want to be a church that stirs up that kind of faith inside of you. So all summer we've been working through this list of the ten impossibilities in Acts 2, 41 through 47. We find that the church was defined by these things. And for some weeks you can check out the podcast. We also put the notes online. So, so if you're a note taker and we move through a slide quicker than what you would have liked, you can always go online and find these things. You can download those on our document portion of our website. And so some weeks we did one. We would spend a few weeks on others. We're doing part two of loyalty tonight. And then we're going to do for the rest of of the, of the month of September, we're going to do a, it's going to be a new series, but it's going to be on prayer. And then in October, we're going to pick up and talk about community a little bit. That, I'm t- the, what we're going to do together in October as a church, it's going to be good. You, you don't want to miss out. Life groups, the sermon series, we're going to be talking more about it next week. So the 10 impossibilities. So we're going to pick up with loyalty tonight. So let me share. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. It says, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. And great grace was on all of them. Oh, come on, may it be true for us. Great grace, not just grace, but great grace. Come on, that'd be a good name for a new series. I've got to make a note of that. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, 
and laid them at the apostles' feet. And this was then distributed to each person as everyone had need. Can you imagine such loyalty amongst a community of people? Can you imagine being a part of a community of people who were that devoted to one another? It was impossible loyalty. Now, as a church, we're not saying we're going to go out and write, be the start of some new communal movement right, in, our, in our modern era. But we are going to believe God for impossible levels of generosity amongst this church. We are going to believe God in, in, in ways that make sense for our culture, in ways that make, make sense for our time. We don't do it the same way they did it, but we want to see the principle that was there 2,000 years ago be present in our church today. We want to be a church that has a measure of loyalty and a measure of devotion to one another that causes the world from the outside looking in saying, that's impossible. How is it that those people that are so different whose ages are so different, whose ethnicities are so diverse, whose socioeconomic backgrounds are so different. How can they be so loyal to one another? We want to be a church that causes that kind of question to be asked of us. So about a year or so ago, we went and sat down with a with a commercial banker that, that we know, uh, just to assess our, our finances. Stewardship is very important to us, our internal controls and, and all of those things. And so sometimes we let people from the outside come in and, and, and take a look. That's important for accountability, financial accountability. So we said, you know, as part of that experience, when you look at, you know, our finances and, and who we are, because we rent space here, you know, one day we're believing for a geographic identity of our own. We said, you know, what would, what would we qualify for if we, if we wanted to buy something? So he gave us a number, and, and, uh, and I said, it seems like we could afford a lot more than that. He said, yeah, but see, when we're assessing churches for what they can afford, we don't do it the same way we do businesses. I said, well, why is that? He said, because churches split. So, so in churches, th th this, is, this is the reputation of the church in the banking industry. So when we lend money to churches, they've got to be able to afford the payment with half their people. Can you imagine? That's the reputation of the church today. Can, can we be a church that changes that? Can we be a church? Can we be a church that, that when somebody from the outside looking in at us gets to know us, begins to assess us, that says they're not the same? And can we not believe, God, that we could be a part of something in our generation and our lifetime where we begin to change the perception of the Christian church in the eyes of the secular world? I want to be a part of something like that, and I hope you do too. So what did we learn last week? We're talking about impossible loyalty. So we said all the different ways that we could come at loyalty, we, we said we're going to explore it this way. There should be alarms that go off in our heart when we're emotionally compromised, right? And we're at risk of disloyalty. Because if we're going to be a church of impossible loyalty, that means that we have to be a, a church that is absent of betrayal and absent of disloyalty. And the only way that's going to happen is if, if we can be a people, if we can be a people that are attuned to the moment so we're emotionally compromised because as we're going to look at it again tonight, as we looked at it last week, it's when we're emotionally compromised. Those are the times that we're at risk of being disloyal. So somebody tell me, come on, I got a, a couple of more stickers. See, if you've already got one, then you can give this away. But somebody, 
because we just handed these out last week for the first time. Don't you like those? Come on, I Instagram mine on my car this week. Everybody, right? People, some of you here, you have a bumper sticker issues, right? We, de- we delivered the church in Jesus' name last week. We prayed people right through that. So this, this could be your very first sticker that you put on your car, right? Storing up your treasures in heaven. That's, Jesus said that. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So somebody tell me last week, what was one of the points, one of the ways that you're emotionally compromised that puts you at risk of, of disloyalty? Come on, Sabra is quick on the draw. What's one of them? Disappointment. Right, come on, you can clap. You guys are bitter tonight. Bitter people. So when, we're, when we experience disappointment, we're emotionally compromised. And I saw Tyler Ashworth's hand up as well. And when we feel entitled, come on, come on. So we talked about that last week. So, all right, I got, well, let's do another one. I got a stack of them up here. Whose life are we looking at through the Bible that helps us understand betrayal and disloyalty? Come on. Jacob's life. Jacob's life. Shame on you guys for not clapping. What's, come on. We're talking about loyalty, just by the way. By the way. Just in case you were wondering. So tonight... We're going to talk. We're going to do. We're going to. We're going to do this one. We'll see if we have time for the next one. If we don't have time for the last one, I'll blog on it, and you can check it out online. But when I'm feeling wronged, so last week we talked about when I feel disappointed, when I when I feel entitled. Those are two places when those emotions kind of flood our heart. We're at risk of stepping into moments of disloyalty. So I want to talk a little bit now about when I'm feeling wronged. When I feel like someone has done, has treated me unfairly. When they've treated me unfairly and I feel as though an injustice has been committed against me, I am in an emotionally compromised state. And as we see through the like of Jacob, whenever we step into a place of being emotionally compromised, we're vulnerable to the temptation of disloyalty. So, so one of the, the, uh, the shows that our family's watching as of recent, our, our daughter has discovered the little house on the prairie. I know, isn't it? See, everybody does that. Oh, this little house. But can I just tell you, there's some treachery in the little house on the prairie. I'm going on record tonight to say I think the little house on the prairie might be responsible for some of the social ills of society today. Because I only watched him as a kid, right? But now that I'm watching it as a parent, I'm thinking to myself, this is not good. Like just the other day, Albert, little Albert, you know who I'm talking about, pretended to be blind to trick his real father so his father would leave him with the Ingalls. And the whole show is about celebrating Albert's deception. Albert is a liar and has a problem with loyalty. Right? I'm telling you, Little House of the Prairie is responsible for some of the socialism in society. So one just a couple of weeks ago, right, two of the little boys, were given, they wanted to be treated like men. So their dad said, you know what, we're going to we're going to send you on a trip to this, this other town. They camped by the, if you can make it there and back, we mailed a letter. You've got to go to the post office, get the letter. If you can make it back on your own, then we'll let you get these jobs that you want to do and we'll begin to treat you as men. So when they get to the town, they don't have any money. So they lied and pretended to be orphans and they took advantage of the generosity of this grandmother who took them in under the guise that they were orphaned children because their parents had all died in a tragedy. And the show was celebrating, right, how they got, made it back, and because they are liars. <laughs> Little House on the Prairie, I'm just saying. Just, i got to work that out. I'm just getting that off my chest tonight. I'm blaming some of my own problems for my own story that my parents let me watch. So, 
So here I'm watching Little House on the Prairie, talking to my kids. You know this is wrong, right? You wouldn't do this. We, we laugh and we joke, but all of you have a story where someone's lied to you. That's television, but you watch shows like that, and you realize you were the person on the other end of deception. You have been the person on the other end of somebody else's lie, whether they were well-intended or whether not they were devious. And for some of you, you're living in the aftermath of other people's betrayal right now, and you feel wronged. And if you do, I'm telling you, you're at risk of disloyalty. You're at risk of disloyalty. We read an excerpt out of this book last week. I want to do another one tonight. My favorite book on the history of the church. It says, in AD 250, the most violent persecution the church had yet faced was instigated by Emperor Decius, who ruled from 249 to 251. A general from the Danubian frontier, Decius was determined to have no nonsense from Christians. In his eyes, they were enemies of the empire. Their atheism, remember we explained that last week, that Christians were originally called atheists because they would not believe in the pantheon of the Roman gods. Thus, Decius commanded all citizens of the empire to sacrifice to the traditional Roman gods. And those who did so were given certificates as evidence that they had obeyed the order. And those who refused to obey or were unable or unwilling to obtain a false certificate from a sympathetic or corrupt official faced death. The penalty was death. To save their lives, many Christians complied. Others were able to obtain certificates without having actually sacrificed, but an unknown number of Christians were imprisoned or executed, among them the bishops of Rome, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Those who were killed were called martyrs, that is, witnesses. And Decius, however, did not want to make heroes. He wanted to discredit Christianity. And so many Christians were tortured until they denied Christ by saying, Caesar is Lord. And if a Christian endured this persecution without denying Christ, he was called a confessor. And if a believer under torture did what the Romans demanded, he was classified amongst the lapsed or the fallen ones. And the fury ended at least for a season in AD 251 when Decius, deserted by his gods, was killed in a battle with the barbarian Goths. Then the question of readmission to the church arose with striking intensity. Many believers were guilty of apostasy, sometimes as many as three-quarters of the congregation. I want you, I want you to see it tonight. That, that if we existed then, as many as three-quarters, so you take this room, people that you love, people that you have, have begun to develop lifelong relationships with, three-quarters of this room commits heresy and says Caesar is Lord. Three-quarters. And of those that remain, scores are tortured and imprisoned and killed. I want to, I want to paint the picture because I want you to understand the significance of this moment in the history of the church. Then the persecution ends. And here's Kevin Garcia. Let's use Kevin for example. He's one of, let's say, five or six people left in the church. Still gathering faithfully on Saturday night. Family dead. Friends, the ones that are still alive, have committed heresy. Praying on his knees for the future of the church in America. And then all of a sudden, people began to come in through the back doors 
And he knows why they're here, why they're still alive. Because they did the unthinkable. They denied their faith. What would you do? What would you do? Would you help them find their seat? Or would you help usher them right out the back door? What would you do? It was one of the greatest moments in the history of the church. I believe it's one of the moments where a seed of loyalty was planted into the church that somehow we have lost that has broken God's heart. But a conversation began to rise up in the church, and this is the question. Are we going to be a school for sinners? Are we going to be a school for saints? And they made a decision. We are going to be a place that forgives people even when they do the unthinkable because Jesus died for our sins. And in that moment in history, I am telling you, something ignited in the church and it began to take over the world. When you and I are in situations and circumstances in our lives where other people have wronged us, where other people have betrayed us, I, we have an opportunity to step into those moments and demonstrate something of Christianity that the world does not understand. I'm not talking about making yourself vulnerable to people that are going to hurt you. I'm not talking about not looking for some evidence of their sincerity, right? We, we walk people through all of that. What I am talking about is being willing to release people from the harm that they have done to you. And if there is true repentance on their part and evidence and fruit of a changed life, that you're willing to restart a journey of relationship with them, we're going to be that kind of church together. Genesis 31. So let's see what Jacob did. How did Jacob fare when he was wronged? Genesis 31. We're going to read 1 and 2, and then we're going to pick up with 36. Genesis 31. It says, Now Jacob heard that what Laban's sons were saying. Jacob has taken all that was our father's and has built this wealth from what belonged to our father. Now, you know they're complaining about that, right? They don't care about their father. They're complaining about their inheritance. Then the Lord said to him, go back to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Let me jump back to verse 2. And Jacob saw from Laban's face that his attitude toward him was not the same. And let me read verse 3 again. Then the Lord said to him, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Now, the instruction that he was given was from the Lord, but how he went about doing it was not right. See, the what we're supposed to do and the how we end up going about doing it, those are two different things. A lot of people get into trouble because they get a word from God about what they're supposed to do, but then they begin to do the how on their own. And oftentimes their own, if it's in response to someone wronging them, then they commit a betrayal themselves, which is what we see here. Verse 36. So then Jacob became incensed and brought charges against Laban. So, so what Jacob does, he gathers up, right, Laban's two daughters, all their kids, servants, all that belongs to them, and in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night, they leave. Laban catches up with them. There's an argument. Here we pick up in verse 36. Then Jacob became incensed, and he brought charges against Laban. What is my crime, he said to Laban? What, what is my sin that you have pursued me? You've searched all my possessions, right? Anybody remember what the complaint was? 
Laban was, his, his, his complaint was that someone had stolen his family idols. And he thinks that, that Jacob has done it. Jacob said, you search all my possessions. Have you found anything of yours? Put it here before my relatives and yours and let them decide between the two of us. All right, now here he comes with his rant. Anybody ever had a rant like this before? Oh, you know you have. I've been with you these 20 years. Your ewes and female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams from your flock. This might not have been your rant, but one similar to that. I did not bring you any of the flock torn by wild beasts. I myself bore the loss. You demanded payment from me for what was stolen by day or by night. There I was in the heat, consumed me by day in the frost by night, and sleep fled from my eyes. For 20 years I've worked for your household, 14 years for your two daughters, and six years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father and the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been with me, certainly now you would have sent me off empty-handed. What's he saying? He's saying, I have been wronged. I've been mistreated. You have not done right by me, and so now I have permission to not do right by you. Come on, anybody ever felt that way before? I'm the, I have, right? Some of you, like me, you've acted on those feelings, which, which is what we're talking about last night, last, last Saturday and tonight, is this idea is that when we are emotionally compromised, there has got to be warning signs that go off inside of us. Come on. The voice of the Holy Spirit, our own character, friends who are close to us that are saying to us, you are in an emotionally compromised state. Don't make any big decisions. Because in that place, just like with Jacob, we give ourselves permission to do things that we shouldn't do, or we give ourselves permission to not do what we should. And Jesus says to us, you can't live your life like that anymore. It might feel like it's the right thing to do. It might be the way the, way the world does it. But as a follower of Christ, we have a different responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to be salt and to light, to be a witness to the world of being able to do the impossible that we can only do through strength of God. You might be here and say, I'm not sure that sounds like such a big betrayal. But if you talk to the parents in the room tonight who have grandchildren and ask them if their children did this to them, how would they feel? And I'll tell you, everyone would say we felt betrayed. Right? So you can imagine Steve and Laurie Ruggiero waking up one day and Tyler and Jessica, gone. Household, Noah, their grandchild, right? First grandchild, disappeared into the wind. Oh, I'm telling you how they would feel, right? Because once you have grandchildren, you don't care about your kids anymore. They are the taxi driver for the grandkids. We know. We're just transport. We're our kids' transportation to see their grandparents. I'm, I think, and this is my own opinion, I think Jacob did it this way just to make it hurt all the more. I think it was his way of saying to his father-in-law, to the grandfather, to his children, I'm taking from you everything that you love and there's nothing you can do about it. 
You took from me this. You took from me that. You took from me over here and over there. You've been doing it for 20 years, and now I'm going to let you know how it feels, and I'm going to have a good time doing it. When we are emotionally compromised, we are at risk. And there should be something inside of us that says, I'm not going to live my life like that anymore. Anymore. How do you know when you've been emotionally compromised because someone has wronged you, because you have harmful thoughts towards them? I know none of you have ever experienced that before, but you know what I'm talking about. You just, your imagination just without a lot of effort begins to think of some wonderful bad things that could happen to them. When that happens, an alarm should go off inside of your heart. I'm emotionally compromised. This person has hurt me. And that wrong feeling of having been wronged has taken root in my heart. When you compulsively retelling your story, find yourself compulsively retelling your story. Have you ever been around people that have been wronged? They just can't stop talking about it. Even when it doesn't even make sense that they would bring it up. It's just out there, right? Now that's important. If that's you, you need to keep talking about it because talking about it is how you get help with it, especially talking about it to trusted friends who care about you, right? But So we're not saying don't talk about it. We're saying recognize the symptom that that is. If you have this need, compulsively, you just have to keep telling the story of what's happened to you. To people in times of prayer, whether you're just talking to yourself, right, as you're driving down the road or vacuuming your house, you're just retelling the story over and over and over and over. It means that your heart has been hurt through the wrong that someone else has committed against you. Something inside of you should say, I'm emotionally compromised and I'm at risk. We talk to people all the time, especially in the, when we, I, if, you've, if you've never come forward for prayer, I hope you do that next month. I'm just telling you, there is something about standing with someone in a place of prayer. I hope you take advantage. It is powerful. God speaks through those moments. It's good stuff. Don't miss out. Oftentimes in those moments, people come with their hurt. They come with their wrongs. And nine times out of ten, I tell them, have you ever heard about prayers of imprecation? You read in the Psalms and you read about David, right? He just, he's, he prays some terrible things. The children are going to be enslaved for generation to come and people's eyes are going to fall out of their head and they're going to have boils on their skin, right? You have prayed prayers like that, you know that you have. And if you didn't, you're, you're going to leave here doing it tonight. You're like, what did you learn at church? Oh, I learned a new way to pray. <laughs> they're called prayers of imprecation, and they're in the Bible. Right? We say them as prayers because God is the safe place to take those feelings. We give those feelings to him, and then he gives us great grace that we need to in turn forgive this person over here. Because if you don't take those feelings to God, you're going to end up taking them to that person, and it's just going to get worse. We're supposed to be givers of grace in this life, not when it's easy because the world can do that, but grace that just seems impossible. Stubbornly withholding forgiveness. If you can't even form the words on your lips, I can't do it, right? If you can't, then something inside of your heart has been hurt 
by somebody. You want to be able to get to a place where you've given them the prayers of imprecation to God and you find yourself praying prayers of blessing over someone who's betrayed you. That's how you know something is healed in your heart. When, 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 when not only does the word, I forgive them, just flow effortlessly from your heart, but you begin to pray good things for them. You begin to pray blessing and favor on their life. You begin to pray for them to prosper. You begin to declare the goodness and the favor of God over them. That's what makes agape love different. That's the very nature of agape love. It means it's a love that you give not based on who they are, but based on who you are. That's why agape love is God's love, because it's born out of his character and not what you deserve. As a people, we want to be a church that helps you walk through the moments where you've been wronged, where you've been hurt, where people have betrayed you, and we want to take you on a journey of healing so that you can forgive, not just for your own sake, but for the story that your life is supposed to tell the world. All right, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and then the last one, I'm just going to blog it this week. But it's when I'm feeling ashamed, when I'm feeling ashamed. I want to read this story as a cap, just as a capstone moment, and then we're going to worship together. And we're going to get down to eating some hot wings. Come on, we like to have fun here at the City Life Church. Just want to read this as a capstone to this whole series, 50-Day People. Cold air rushing out of a limestone sinkhole atop a big hill west of Luray, Virginia, blew out a candle held by Andrew Campbell, the town tinsmith. And on the morning of August 13 of 1878, so began the discovery of Luray Caverns. Anybody been there? It's amazing. Campbell and three other men and his 13-year-old nephew, Quint, were exploring the area looking for a cave. With the help of local photographer Benton Stebbins, the men dug away loose rocks for four hours before. Candle in hand, Campbell and Quint slid down a rope into the cave. They could scarcely believe what they saw. The party had discovered the largest series of caverns in the east. An eerie world of stalactites and stalagmites seen by the light of a candle. At the time of the discovery, Sam Baraka of Luray owned the land on which the cavern entrance was found. But because of uncollected debts, a court-ordered auction of all his land was held on September 14th of 1878. So this is just a couple of months after they found the entrance. Andrew Campbell and William Campbell and Benton Stebbins purchased the cave track, keeping the discovery a secret. Right? Because they had watched The Little House on the Prairie. Word reached the page courier, and that week there was a note about the sudden rise in the property value of Cave Hill. I'm telling you, Sam Barocker, he was not a happy man. Editor Andrew Broaddus' account in the October 3rd issue of the Page Courier was an article giving a lavish description of the cave, ending with the statement that the proprietors are now at work with a good force preparing an early illumination. 
Alexander J. Brand Jr., correspondent for the New York Herald, was the first travel writer to visit Luray Cavern. It's a magnificent cave, he told the townspeople. The most beautiful I've ever seen. Trying to compare your cave to others would be like comparing New York City to the actual town of Luray. And if you think it's small now, you can imagine what it was then. And with those words, the public's interest in visiting the caverns began. Come on, stand with me as we worship.